This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. After a couple of weeks in the film world, this week's show is all about the musical arts. It's been an impossible couple of years for any organization trying to celebrate a significant anniversary. But with COVID transmission numbers on the wane in Colombia, for now at least, one organization will be celebrating its golden jubilee this weekend, two years later than planned. And this week, I chatted with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's executive director, Trent Rash, about the organization's history, and in particular, about two people whose love for music and love for each other were the bedrock of the Missouri Symphony Society for half a century. Plus, local singer-songwriter Meredith Shaw takes us on a journey into the Nashville music scene. I had hoped that we would have a third musical guest on the show as next Monday is the launch of the American Song Contest, the American version of the Eurovision Song Contest, which today is the largest non-sporting televised event in the world, watched by over 200 million people across Europe and Australia, but mostly unknown by Americans. But now America is launching its own version, which will air on NBC next Monday evening and will see musical performers from all 50 states plus six territories and the capital compete for Best American Song. The process for who is chosen to compete for each state is opaque, to say the least. But competing for Missouri is a young singer-songwriter from Fredericktown called Brett Seeper, who will be representing our state on, I believe, the fifth episode of the show, which will be on April the 18th, though that might be subject to change. Anywho, we were all set to chat, but the American Song Contest publicist suddenly had an unspecified scheduling conflict and my chat with Brett was not allowed to go ahead, for now at least. The competition stage is not particularly fairly stacked, with some states fielding hugely experienced artists like Michael Bolton, Jewel and Macy Gray, and other states being represented by musical newbies. Brett definitely needs the support of his state to help propel him through to the semi-finals, and I hope that at some point I get the green light to chat with him. In the meantime, I remain laser-focused on the Eurovision Song Contest, which takes place in May, where the Kalush Orchestra from the Ukraine are currently the favourites to win. So, for this week's show, we are keeping it local. Let's head out. It is now 52 years since the Missouri Symphony Society was founded by Hugo and Lucy Vianello back in 1970. But all the organization's big 50th anniversary celebrations planned for 2020 were, out of pandemic necessity, postponed. There were some online events, and last year there was an evening at the Missouri Theatre to view a short documentary about the history of the symphony, but there just wasn't a safe time for the Golden Gala Night celebrating the Symphony Society's half-century anniversary until 
now, that is. This weekend, the symphony finally gets to have its postponed Golden Gala at Stevens College's Kimball Ballroom. So it seems like a good time to welcome Trent Rash, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's executive director, back to the show to take a look back over the orchestra's past five decades and find out a little more about the two people who made it their life's work to create a symphony orchestra for mid-Missouri, Maestro Hugo and Lucy Vianello. Hello, Trent Rash, and welcome back. Hello, so glad to be here. Your relationship with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra reminds me a lot of my relationship with the Columbia Art League. We were both hired by long-standing, much-loved arts organizations that had gone through rough times, were struggling to find their voice with the new generations and needed a new vision for the future. And I think it's true to say that you and I both fell in love with the history of our organizations and the incredible spirit of volunteerism that had kept them alive up to the point that we arrived. So before we get to the history of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, tell me a little bit about how far back your history goes with the orchestra. Sure. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. The, the Missouri Theatre itself has weaved in and out of my existence in Columbia since I moved here for my undergraduate degree in 1999. In the spring of 2000, I actually was in uh, the opera The Tenderland, at the Missouri Theater before it was even renovated. And later on, I was in some concerts with the uh, Hot Summer Nights with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra as a featured singer for some Broadway shows. And so over the years, I've, I've been on the, the outskirts of, of everything that, that has been going on uh, with the symphony proper. And so it just seemed like the universe was slowly kind of pulling me toward it, even though I was on the <laughs> outer edge there. Last time you were on the show, you talked about growing up in a symphonic desert and that it was a piece of music in the movie Forrest Gump, which first opened your heart to symphonic music. So I'm curious, did you play an instrument as a child? Was there playing music in your life? Yes, I, I did. I played the trombone. Oh. I started with the trombone um, in sixth grade. And then actually, it's a funny story because I'm known as a singer. But when I got to high school, unfortunately, my high school was, was rather small. And while there was both a band and a choir, I had to choose between them because of fitting on the classes I needed for college prep. So I actually chose band. And um the choir director actually had to hunt me down and get me to at least join the chamber choir, the top choir that rehearsed before school. But I really enjoyed playing the trombone. When we first met, you were teaching musical theatre at Stevens College and you were and are really, really good at musical theatre. So it seemed to me at that time that orchestral music would be a deviation for you. But you do have a background in playing, say, playing the trombone. But what is your true musical love? Is it musical theatre or is it big orchestral music? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, the great thing is, is that a lot of times those two things are married because a lot of musicals have a big orchestral sound. So obviously musical theatre is a, a huge passion of mine, but I am so moved whenever I'm in a symphonic music concert. So I think I would say this. I love to be on the stage, being involved in a musical, but I love to be in the audience when listening to a symphonic music concert. Would you ever consider playing the trombone again for an orchestra or is it just too long ago? No, I've actually, I've joked a lot lately with folks that I should get it out and try to join the, you know, the civic orchestra or the civic band. The chops are still in there somewhere, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You have so many chops. You're really, you're really a great comedian too. So I don't know how you decide which chops you're going to 
put on display for the world. So take us back to the late 1960s and tell me, how did Italian Hugo Vianello and his American wife Lucy end up in Colombia? So they, of course, had met in Brooklyn, which is where Lucy is originally from. And they had moved just prior to this area. They had been living in in Minnesota and Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Symphony. And Hugo actually got involved with the predecessor to the Kansas City Symphony, which I think might have been called the Kansas City Philharmonic. But don't quote me on that. I'm not quite sure. And so he had been contracted to be their assistant director. And so they moved there. And then he got courted by Stevens College to move to Columbia. And what brought them to Columbia originally was his teaching job as the director of orchestral studies at Stevens College. And at that time, Stevens had a very thriving uh, music conservatory. And so he was able to do a lot of orchestral works, and they used to have a big old grand auditorium that, that they did that in. And it was at that point that he noticed that there was sort of a hole at that time in the education system for Columbia Public Schools where there wasn't really opportunities for string players or for evolving or or growing, you know, a string community in the town. So that was really the emphasis for him to start the Missouri Symphony was that he wanted to create an education program for string players. And it's what's what's interesting is that, you know, people think of the Missouri, Missouri Symphony Orchestra, but he really, the first thing that was created was a youth symphony in 1971. That was the first ensemble. So the Symphony Society was founded in 1970, but as you said, it was the Missouri Youth Symphony in 1971 that really kick-started the orchestra. Tell us a little bit about those early years and how the orchestra got going. Yeah, so Hugo had started the Missouri Youth Symphony, which was the first group. And so essentially the kind of order when he had that going, and then he's like, well, maybe we can offer some other enrichment. So they started the Missouri Youth Band and the Missouri Youth Choir, and those were 71, 72, 73, kind of all in a row. And kind of what happened was he was doing this, and a lot of what he was doing was also in the summer, but he he really wanted to utilize some coaches and some people to help him, so he was actually bringing in some musicians from the Kansas City area, which is what he knew from having been an assistant music director there, and he found that, you know, while they were here, he's like, well, these people could play as well. So while they were there and and doing these summer camps and, and doing these ensembles, that's really what became the formation of sort of the Summer Music Festival in 1976. They formed the Missouri Chamber Orchestra, which a chamber orchestra is a smaller version of a symphony, about about 35 to 40 players at the most, maybe 30 to 35. And so he just thought, well, I have all these wonderful players in town. Why don't we actually have them play as well? And that's kind of how that got born. So there must be some people rocking around who were in those original youth symphony orchestras that now play nationally or yes. play in the Missouri Symphony Orchestra today. Are there are there many people that recall those early days that are now grown-up musicians? You know what? So, yes, I actually have my board vice president, Earl Coleman, was here, and he was a college student, and he was in the original Missouri Chamber Orchestra. He saw it get formed. He helped with some of the, the youth stuff. And he's named a number of people that, that he's known and has gone through. And he might have even played some when he, he taught at, at Hickman High School and in Columbia for a little while. So, yes, there definitely are people. And there are some that went on. He mentioned one student that had been in the youth program that went on to play at the Met in New York. And um, maybe is just now nearing retirement from that. But, yeah, there are some of those early musicians that went on to greater things. And there are some that actually still live in the community and do things in our community like teaching or, or working at a bank. or So it's kind of fun that they, they kind of exist um, all over and even here in, in town. 
So Hugo Vianello was the impassioned dynamic conductor who was the outward face of the symphony. But it was the quiet strength and hard work of his wife, Lucy, who was absolutely equally behind the symphony's success. And I know you spent a long time with Lucy when you were working on the documentary about the symphony. So give us an insight into Lucy's role in those early years. Absolutely. I adore Lucy Vianello. I really call her the mother of us all, certainly of Mosey. Um, and she still is just sharp as a tack and a wonderful mentor to me. I can't say enough good things about her. But certainly from knowing her now for, for the time that I have, and I have spent a lot of time with her, it's clear to me that she really kind of ran the show behind the scenes. She's sharp, she's witty, she knows how to get things done. And so while Hugo was the front man and, and, and the one everyone looked at, you know, Lucy was fine just being the one behind the scenes, really making sure all the bills got paid and all those things got taken care of. You know, some people might not know that she served as the volunteer office manager for 15 years. She didn't get paid. She just came in every day and, and did the work and went home. And Hugo would bring home whether it was guest conductors or guest musicians, there were always people over in the house for dinners. And so she was she was always on call and always ready to serve as needed to do so and really did so without ever complaining, just knowing that it was work that needed to be done and work that she saw that she really believed in. She saw the community needed this and she was not afraid to, to do the work. She was also really instrumental in raising funds for the Symphony Society too, right? Absolutely. I think there's a really great quote by her that was like, if you want to have money raised, get a group of women together. <laughs> and um, so the year that the first ensemble was formed, the Missouri Youth Symphony, at that time, the Women's Symphony League was formed by Lucy and a another one of her friends. And they really were focusing on how can we hold fundraisers? How can we hold events? How can we get people to donate to the symphony? And they have raised... Um, I wish I knew off, off my head how much they've raised since that first year. It's, a, it's a quite a large sum of money for the symphony. Well, as part of the celebration for the symphony's 50th anniversary, you worked with Peace Frame Productions here in Columbia to make a short documentary about the history of the symphony. So let's take a little listen to a small segment of the doc. And this is where you and Lucy are looking through her press coverage scrapbook. And she talks about her role with the symphony. And then their daughter, Lily, talks a little bit about her mum. Let's take a listen. Oh, another first thing is that we went to the penitentiary. Ken is alive with the sound of music. Oh, yeah, there, they there they are. I think he thought music was a right and privilege of everybody. It was all over the place. It just goes on and on and on and on. <clears throat> I'm not the kind of person who takes credit for things. I've always been second fiddle to Hugo Vianello. And I, if it was successful, I applauded him, not myself. I just, I don't know. I supported him in every single one of his endeavors. I can't think of anything that he did professionally that I did not assist or was involved or whatever. My mother was and remains a smart, educated, capable woman who chose to be in her career at the stage where it made sense for my father's career for her to do so. And then when his career took off, she transitioned, and she transitioned into a homemaker and a family maker, but she never was not working from our home. Quitting? No, it was such an integral part of my life, I couldn't imagine leaving it. Because 
Then Hugo became more and more involved in it as well, of course, with the, his conducting, but even though he was working full-time at Stevens College or the university. You know, I felt uh, compelled to be here. It was like, it was my baby, you know, so to speak, so you wouldn't abandon it. So when you showed the movie at the Missouri Theatre, I know from people that were there, there were, it was a very moving documentary. Was, was that particular scene about Lucy talking about her love for Hugo and for the orchestra, was that a real tearjerker moment? Were there lots of tearjerker moments? Oh, my gosh, yes. The funny thing is I had watched it probably two times. Well, you know, I've watched some drafts, and every time, every time I cried, and that one scene, you know, there's one part where Lucy's holding a photo of Hugo, and there's a male actor reading a letter that he wrote to her. And, I mean, it's just like you really could tell the devotion they had toward each other. It really came through in the documentary. But yeah, I really hope that for a lot of people that are new to us or that we're hoping to, you know, get more involved, they really got to understand, you know, where we came from. That was really the goal with this first part of this documentary. The Missouri Symphony Society purchased the Missouri Theatre building back in 1987. And there's a lovely bit in the documentary where Hugo talks about (laughs) rushing them a check for $1,000 to the then owners of the building to have them put it on hold for them. And I think ultimately it cost over $300,000 or something. But tell us a little bit about the Society's search for a building and how they stumbled upon the Missouri Theatre. So because of his of his relationship with Stevens, you know, the early years of the symphony took place at Stevens College, they were able to use their facilities because Hugo was still on staff there for a while. And I think it got to a point where it was hard to conflict with the, the schedule of the college itself. And like I said, there was a thriving conservatory at that time. And, and so space was somewhat limited. And, and I think that just at the right time, that they were they had a lot of the summer music festival with Hugo in the early days had been touring around Missouri. So they would take the orchestra to nine or 10 different cities over the summer. And they were starting to think about staying more home-based. So they needed a place to do that. And so it just so happened as they were having those conversations that the Missouri theater, which at that time was ending its run as a normal movie theater, Cineplex was, um, up for sale or or in his case, you know, it's a fun story because he thought it was just up for rent and they really kind of upsold him (laughs) into him buying it by the time he left in that first meeting. (laughs) You have some lovely archival footage in the documentary of Hugo talking about the early days with various news reporters. Talk to me about sourcing all of that. and, And what were your source materials? Where did you go to find all of this? Yeah, I was very lucky, you know, at the time I had on staff Monica Cynical Palmer, who is a really is a historian. <laughs> she said um, she she really loves history and research. And so she, along with the staff of Peace Frame, dug through archival footage. We are very fortunate that we have a pretty substantial booth at the Missouri State Historical Society. And so a lot of this footage was there and readily available at the Historical Society. And so that's where a lot of it came from, was was from those records. And I'm so glad that we have it because because we had it, it really was able to make Hugo a character because rather than just somebody we talked about, we really got to see him living and breathing. And I think that was really important for that particular part of the documentary. Yeah, there's a really sad bit where Lucy is looking at the big painting or photograph, I don't know if it's a photograph or a painting, in the Missouri Theatre of Hugo. And she says, you know, it's so long since he was here, him and he retired in 98, that people don't know who he is any longer. That was really heartfelt. 
Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's been a fear for of hers as, as I've talked to her, you know, like, will people remember where we came from? And, and I said, well, Lucy, you know, it's the job of the staff and the board that we, you know, yes, that people won't forget that, that there'll always be, we will always create ways for people to know where we came from, because that really helps inform where we need to go. When you look back through the history boxes and the scrapbooks, what are some of the moments that stand out for you? I think that there's been some wonderful people that have come through here. When they first started working with the Mozart Higde Foundation, um, gosh, the name is escaping me. They brought in a really wonderful opera singer to perform. Um, and I just was floored that she came and she came into this this beautiful concert. I think sometimes it's fun to see some people that due to age and are no longer as active, but seeing them, you know, with their sleeves rolled up and, and, and doing the work that they did back in the day, that that is really heartwarming. Um, and then I wish I could have gone to this concert because I was certainly around. But, you know, the fact that Tony Bennett reopened the theater after the symphony had renovated it is just so wonderful. And the fact that it was jam-packed, and I'd love to see another jam-packed you know, Missouri <laughs> theater concert because I'm sure the energy in that was just wonderful. I was there for that concert, in fact. So yes, I do remember it. And I remember a bit where he just put the microphone to the side and said, you know, the acoustics in this building is so good. I don't need a microphone. And he just sang in this beautiful building. So it was, it was a really incredible, moving evening. So Maestro Vianello retired in 98, as I said, and in 2000, Kirk Trevor was appointed as the new permanent music director of the Missouri Symphony Society. And a whole new era began with his coming, the establishment of the Hot Summer Nights Festival in 2004, the founding of the Plowman Chamber Music Competition in 2006, of course, the capital campaign to restore the theatre, the founding of the Missouri Symphony Conservatory in 2007, and then in 2008, as we just said, Tony Bennett coming in the grand reopening of what was temporarily called the Missouri Theatre Center for the Arts, which, of course, included the Columbia Art League. But then things went awry and there were some very dark years. And the documentary does not go into any of that, but it is a critical part of the organization's history. What discussions did you have around including that or not? So part of it is I will say the documentary is not finished. And I think that that is where it kind of stops is at that piece right there. And that's where if we do get the funding that we want, we can finish it starting with there and into where we are currently. I think that part of it was they did interviews with a number of people. And I do think that it was it came up because it's certainly a, a spot of hurt and pain for a number of people who mm. worked so hard and gave so much blood, sweat and tears to seeing the theater renovated in a way that I, I don't even think I can understand. I mean, I certainly... You know, someone who performed in it before and after, I certainly am floored by the beautiful, wonderful changes, and I'm so glad they took place. But there were people that certainly gave so much of themselves to it. But I think that when when the theater was lost to the symphony, that was certainly a very perhaps the most dark, the darkest period of the organization because its identity had been so tied to it that there was this idea of can it even continue. Um, and I, I do have to hand it to Kirk Trevor because there was one year a summer music festival was even going, to, even going to happen and he went out and raised all the funds for it. So, you know, I think that um, really, I think just now, you know, and this is 10, 11 years later, we're just now kind of coming to a different place, you know, a new and exciting place. And the idea that, yes, the symphony can exist And yes, the Missouri Theater will always be our performance home, but it's not 100% part of our identity, that we can't exist as an organization beyond its walls, and that that's actually what we need to do to move forward and to grow. 
Right. Hugo was very much a traditionalist, a European who grew up with the great European classical composers. But today, the classical music world is starting to undergo a ground-shifting transformation to be more inclusive to composers from beyond the traditional canon, contemporary composers, BIPOC and female composers. And I know that is something that you are really passionate about. So although Hugo died in 2018, before you really joined the organization, I wonder whether you ever imagine sitting down for a fireside chat with Hugo and how you think that conversation would go. Oh, that's so funny you bring that up. I do sometimes often wish that I could sit down with Hugo. <laughs> and I I think that um, at his heart, Hugo wanted to see this organization go on for as long as it could. And I think that if we were to sit down, I think that he would understand where things are going and what needs to happen to see that through. And I'll, I'll say right now, you know, Lucy, who's still with us, um, at some point I can come back and talk about this. We have exciting four finalists for our music director search that are coming in the summer. Two of them are female. Two of them are male. Two of them are of uh, Latinx descent. It's a very diverse group of people. And when one of the candidates came, because they came previously, Lucy was just, I, I could tell she was not hiding her excitement, but she didn't want to seem more excited, but just the fact that it was a female conductor that could be the music director was really intriguing to her and really exciting to her. Oh, that is very exciting. We will definitely have to have another chat about your search for a new music director because, of course, Kirk Trevor stepped down as your longtime music director last year. But staying on that theme of being on this kind of fulcrum between the past and the future, a traditional past and a more diverse and inclusive future, if we were sitting here again in 10 years, what do you hope your legacy, you and your current team, what do you hope your legacy will be? That we will have broadened our audience base by helping people to see that they have a seat at the orchestra. And part of that is that we brought them in by not trying to coax them to come to the theater, but we went and met them where they were. And that we brought symphonic music to places where people never imagined it could happen. And I, I think that juxtaposition is important, and I think it actually helps people's minds understand that this music can be relevant, it can be trendy, it can be exciting, and that there's still a place for it. Indeed. So this weekend is the big put on your best frock or dig out your tuxedo <laughs> golden gala celebration night. What does the night hold? Yes. Yeah, so really just a lot of celebrating. You know, we've been undergoing a lot of change lately. And one of the things that it's good to do when you're undergoing a lot of change is to take a moment to pause and to celebrate. So this will finally be our chance after two years in the making to celebrate people that have been instrumental in the first 50 years of our existence. So we have about six or seven individuals that have given of their time, talent, treasure, um, that were certainly pillars of the organization that we will be honoring in the program portion of the evening and that we'll be receiving a token of our appreciation. Also, we will be unveiling a new sort of video that not only honors them, but the organization as a whole. And, and lastly, you know, there'll be some fun. And uh, I'm excited to say that there are two specialty cocktails that will be free all evening that are called the Hugo and the Lucy. <laughs> and um, we're really excited. You know, it's funny. We asked Lucy, we said, hey, you know what? What kind of drinks do you all like? And she's like, well, I really didn't drink that much, but I am Italian. So I did grow up drinking wine from the age of five. <laughs> <laughs> 
But but she did say that, you know, Hugo always liked to drink. He really appreciated a dry martini. So his drink, uh, the Hugo, is inspired by by a martini. And Lucy's drink, because she is um, has a little bit of fire in her, and that's what we love about her, hers is actually a bourbon-based drink. Uh, which is more my speed. So you'll have to come there. They're both very, very well put together, and all the ingredients are actually on, on the little program sheet. But it, it's, it's just kind of fun that we can offer that as another way to celebrate them. Well, I think on the website it said that tickets for Saturday evening had to be reserved by March the 9th. But if somebody desperately wants to go at this point, is that still possible? Or are they going to have to wait for the Diamond Jubilee in eight years? <laughs> no, we do. We do have a few, a few seats available. So if someone's like, oh, my gosh, I really, really, really want to do this, they just need to give us a call in the office and we can hopefully make that accommodation. Perfect. And I know the uh, you showed the documentary a while back, but it was for a limited group. It was a fundraising night. Will there be a point, do you know, maybe you don't know, when the documentary might be on a more general release for people to watch? Yeah, I'm hoping soon. We've, we've been working out some things, but I'm hoping that if if we can't distribute it, that we would have another evening since we wouldn't have to be so limited in seating where we may just have another showing, you know, at the theater. That would be ideal where we can invite people in at a more economic ticket. The Missouri Symphony Orchestra will be celebrating its Golden Jubilee this coming Saturday, March the 19th at the Kimball Ballroom at Stevens College. And if you email the orchestra's executive director, Trent Rash, very nicely, he might be able to squeeze you in. Meanwhile, keep an eye on their website, themosey.org, for what will take the place of hot summer nights this summer. Trent, thanks, as always, for making time to chat. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Diana. When I was in my early teens, I'd watch pop stars on the telly who were just a few years older than me. And I'd think that the bravery to get on stage and realise your dreams was for older people older than me. And now I am old and I look at younger people and I think that the bravery to get on stage and realise your dreams must be for younger people. And yet there are so many people in my life who prove to me time and time again that you should just go for your dreams whenever you want. Join an improv group with no acting experience. Kudos to Stacey Pottinger. Audition for a play when you haven't done anything for decades. Kudos to David McSpadden and Jim Maloney and many friends. Or like my next guest. Pick up your guitar after a 20-year hiatus, go to Nashville and start a singer-songwriting career. And what a delight it is to welcome Meredith Shaw to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Meredith. Hello. Thank you. That was a wonderful introduction. Wow. I'm not sure I'm worthy of that. That's some great company to be in. I'm like, I love Stacey and Jim and David. Those are all wonderful people. So... Yeah, you are definitely worthy to be in that group. And I cannot tell you how much I love that after raising children, working full time, starting a doctoral degree, you thought, oh, you know what, I think I just throw my hat into the Nashville ring and see what happens. Was there a moment in time when you made that decision? And if so, what prompted it? Well, there were quite a few things that happened. I mean, part of it was COVID, right? So there was there was that whole pandemic thing. And so I was home writing some things. Um, there was also a change in life relationships and some some big changes there. Kind of at the beginning of 2020, like my goal for 2020 was just to go to Nashville and play my guitar in a parking lot <laughs> to say to say I'd played in Nashville. Like, <laughs> That was my goal was like, I'm at the end of my 40s. I'm going, you know, I've never played in Nashville. I want to at least say that I played in Nashville. And that was kind of my goal going into 2020. And then I had a whole lot of stuff happen 
over the course of the year. My husband left. I ended up getting divorced. Uh, you know, some big life changes. And, you know, I had an opportunity to go to Nashville, record some music, had an opportunity to go back to Nashville and start playing down there. And so just a lot of like, yeah, some big life changes where I went. Here's a whole new chapter of life. I guess if I'm going to do things, now is the time. So that's kind of what prompted all of this. What was the opportunity? I mean, what did arise out of the blue at a perfect time? Out of the blue, well, I was, so I was starting to play music around Columbia. And that was, I think it was 2018, just doing some open mics and having some really great encouragement locally to start writing again and playing and getting my feet wet here and having some great encouragement at local open mics and then being invited to do Ramblers Club, which is another great songwriter venue. And so I was starting to do more and more around Columbia. And then there was this like weird lockdown, (laughs) this weird thing that happened to all of us. And uh, I put together, I had a a friend, Caleb, who was my guitar instructor. I'd started taking it like I wanted to get better, right? You start doing more and you start realizing like the more you do, the more you realize, the more you don't know. It's like, I need to get better. I need to, I want to do more. So I need to get better. So I started taking guitar classes um, from Caleb Alexander So he encouraged me to put together, he's like, you're starting to play gigs. People want you to play gigs. You need to put together an artist page. I'm like, okay. So I did that on Facebook and I felt really weird about that. (laughs) Oh, like, like you said, putting yourself out there for people to judge is really intimidating and scary. And then, you know, you have friends who like your page and you're like, wow, that's so big and scary. And then just through the course of the pandemic, I started writing some new songs and I wrote a song, Whiskey Situation, and just made a video at my house and put it out there. And it's it's kind of about, you know, it was it was in April, like right after the pandemic had started. And the whole idea of the song is kind of this weird, like being at home drinking by yourself with all your friends like we're in this weird thing trying to do this alone together we don't know what's happening and that's kind of the crux of the song and I put this video out and got 12,000 views in a weekend wow you know which is awesome but also for someone like me very anxiety producing like oh no what's what's happening um and had a lot of, of local people reaching out going, hey, let's co-write. Hey, you should come to my studio and record this. Which again, terrific, but also for someone like me, some creative types, it's you know a lot of anxiety. Oh, what am, I'm going to do something wrong. I don't know how to maneuver. You know, this is starting to feel businessy. I don't know anything about music business. And so I reached out to... An old friend, someone I'd grown up with who works as a producer in Nashville, because I thought he actually will know, like, the nuts and bolts of what I should do for something like this. And so I reached out to him, and it was more like just, you know, what do I need to do for a song such as this? And he, you know, his advice was join BMI or ASCAP. That's all you need to do to protect a song. Okay. You know, you don't need to get a patent. You don't have to go get a copyright. That's all you have to do. And at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, David, have you listened to the song? 
And he's a very, he's just the nicest guy. Like he always was just the nicest person. And this is a producer who worked with Katy Perry before she became a pop star. Like she used to do contemporary Christian music. He produced her then. He worked with Diane Warren. He's worked with a lot of people, right? And But he's also just the nicest guy. And he was like, oh yeah, send send it to me. I'd love to listen to it. And then later that night, I started feeling bad because of anxiety. And so I sent him another message and said, you know, David, you know, please know I'm not pitching you a song. I'm just a whore for attention. Like, I just, I just want you to pat me on the head and tell me that I did a good job. And that was fully what I was expecting was, you know, he's a really nice guy that he would say, oh, I'm glad to hear you're still doing music, you know, keep it up. That's what I'm expecting out of my friend David. What I get back the next day at like five in the morning is this very long message that he's listened to the song. He didn't know that I could write like that. He didn't know that I could sing anymore. Like he knew me in high school. He knew I could sing community theater stuff. And basically through the crux of like several Facebook messages back and forth, it was... If you're going to record this song, I would like first shot. Would you come to Nashville and come record this? And I was uh, a little blown away. Took me a while to (laughs) uh, believe it. You know, I was, some of my messages were, I just woke up. Is this, am I still dreaming? Did I die? (laughs) Is it April the 1st? Yeah. is, Is this, are you messing with me also is this going to cost me my house to do because i know i have to pay you to produce but you know he was very positive and kind and like oh there's still work to do on it but i would really like for shot at this and so i figured out a way to do that and went and recorded whiskey situation and went into it fully thinking this is the experience of a lifetime, Mm. right? Like driving down there, going into it like this is the vacation of my dreams. I have a cool Airbnb in East Nashville. Like I'm spending a week in Nashville by myself. This is my dream. Like this is the giant bucket list thing. I had a tattoo scheduled that was kind of to commemorate the recording of the music If nothing else ever happens, if this is all that ever happens for me, this is better than anything I ever thought was going to happen. Um, And it was. It was like a phenomenal week. I got down there. Having a producer at that caliber, I walk in. He already has the whole song plotted out. He's already imagined and already knows what the final product will sound like in his head. And so that was, that was amazing to me because um, I was like, what are you talking about? Then it breaks into three-part harmony and all this <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, oh, no, we'll, we'll get there. You'll, you'll understand. So that all sounds amazing. I mean, you, you're in Nashville. You've got a producer. He's producing a record. What does that mean in practical terms? Does it mean that you end up making some money? Does it mean that it's pressed onto a CD? Does it mean that suddenly other people are calling you? Like, what's the onward journey from that amazing point? Really, it just means you're one of thousands and thousands of people in Nashville who are trying to get heard, right? So it's still, you're still just a little fish in a big pond down there, but now you have a shinier product. Um, 
and someone who's, you know, he's got some connections, so he's trying to push it out there as well. But but he also, we're also very realistic about it, right? There are 60,000 songs a day uploaded to Spotify. So it's it's very hard to get any traction with that. So it's about that trying to be realistic. It's It's having someone like him, though, who's on the ground in Nashville all the time who can try to shop it around because he's got a vested interest. As a producer, he and I are now co-writers, so I've, I've went back. He and I have written some stuff. I've recorded more things. I've went down and played writers' rounds, and and met more people in Nashville, and and trying to you know trying to become part of that community as well as the terrific performing community in Columbia and Mid Missouri. Trying to become part of the community that's in Nashville, also trying to beat the streets down there and trying to meet more people. So. Well, tell us a little bit about this idea, these writers' rounds, because most of us will never uh, try the hand on the Nashville scene. We don't have the bravery that you have or the skills. So you turn up in Nashville and you have a song or you're a songwriter and have multiple songs. What are writers' rounds? How do they work? So writers' rounds are nights at bars where basically usually from 6 to 10 – Every hour, three or four different songwriters get up there and do their original material. Most people, when they go to Nashville, they're downtown Broadway where it's it's loud and it's starting to sound more like New Orleans. And it's like these big bands are playing. It's very different than what maybe Nashville used to be. But if you get a little farther out, the smaller bars that are featuring songwriters and you think a lot of people know about the Bluebird, the Bluebird is very hard to get into now, but all the other bars really kind of rely on free talent, essentially, like free songwriters who come in and just are playing their original songs every night from 6 to 10, 6 to midnight, and three or four different songwriters every hour, and you get scheduled in, and it's really just, you know, one person... And I knew one person, Aaron Shelb, who's actually from Columbia. And so um, J.T. Schneckenberg connected me with Aaron, right? So it's all these great connections. It's all this networking. Aaron put me on one round, and then he put me on another round later in the month. I spent a whole month down there in October of 2020. Once he met me and once he saw what I could do, he's like, oh, you know, you're great. We're great friends now. And, And then it's kind of that whole networking thing. Once I met some other people that ran some of the other rounds, they invited me to play some of the other, you know, rounds at a different bar that they ran. But where does this all end? I mean, you're playing rounds in bars. I mean, if the bars are full of people like me, that's not going to do you any good at all because I have no way to help you. But I mean, who are you hoping is going to be there? You're hoping, you know, sometimes producers show up. You're also just trying to get better. You're trying to meet other songwriters to write with. You know, you're trying to write that great song that gets noticed. And part of it is you start developing a following at some of these bars. And so then you move on to some of the bigger bars that get a a little bit more attention. So it's some of that, like, you're just trying to kind of like around here, you're trying to build a following. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to build your social media. You're trying to get noticed by, by anybody because you never know in Nashville, you never know who's walking into a bar. You Mm. never know who's, who's showing up somewhere. I played one writer's round, and one of the singers that was playing before me, she had a guest guitarist playing with her, 
And she was like, you know, some of you might recognize him as Quentin Gibson. He's, you know, Darius Rucker's lead guitar player. You know, and I was like, I am going to meet him. I'm going to I'm going to make sure I say hello to Quentin. And then because of social media, because you have that opportunity, I sent him a little message later and he you know, sent me a message back. And he was like, sorry, I didn't get a chance to see your whole set, but I really liked what I heard. You sounded great. And then he said, how do you know David Browning, which is my producer? And I was like, I've known David for 30 years. He's my producer. He's why I'm here. And he said, I've known David for 30 years. He's one of the first people I met when I came to Nashville. <laughs> and so now Quentin and I are friends now. But it's that kind of thing where you have to be ready for those opportunities to just say hello to you never know who's going to be out somewhere. And, um, you know, that's what's kind of fascinating, I think, about Nashville is there are tons of people who make a living who aren't Reba, who aren't Darius, who aren't Garth Brooks, who aren't these top names, but who are people like Quentin who play guitar for the big names, who are other people that you would walk by, you would you would never recognize their names, but they're session musicians. They are people who write for the big names, you know. How much of a difference does it make that mostly I imagine that Nashville is full of everyday busloads of wide-eyed, young, gorgeous ingenues and, and boys in cowboy hats, young studs clutching their guitars, looking for fame. And they're, and they're just, there's busloads of them disgorging every day. And then there's at the other end of the bus station, there's lots of sad, tearful ingenues, a little less innocent that are going home. So how do you, as a more mature, much less desperately seeking a career and riches. How do you as a songwriter navigate this scene of ingenues? Well, I think part of it is that I have some freedom, right? Because my whole life's not riding on it. So I am just enjoying every second that I'm ever in Nashville. It's it's just a blast because I'm... I'm enjoying it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, my whole life doesn't depend on this. I've already had great careers and other things. Um, I'm just enjoying that I get to be in Nashville doing this, playing for it. Like, I'm just enjoying enjoying meeting these other terrific songwriters who who maybe are going to be the next Carrie Underwood or something. Like, like I, I meet some of these songwriters and I'm like, oh, you have all the things. You're young and beautiful. And so it's kind of fun and exciting. And I think that was one of the things that I noticed in some of those first rounds, because it was, it's very intimidating as someone who's, you know, I've, I played down there in September and you go, I'm 50, I'm going to be 50 in a couple months. I am 50 now. And here are some 20 year olds, 22 year olds who are beautiful, right? They're gorgeous. Like you said, the guys are all fabulous. Everybody plays guitar way better than I do. And they all, they look the part and all this stuff. Um, the difference is I've got 20 years of theater stage presence stuff on some of them. And stories. I also have a lot of different <laughs> stories to tell. You know, the stories that I'm telling are a little different than the stories. And the stories I tell now are different than the stories I wrote when I was 20. Well, let's take a little musical break and listen to your latest track. This is called The Other other woman which you released at the end of january this year tell us first what it's about um this song is 
about a um, a wife who gets a phone call from someone who's calling to let her know that, you know, she's the other woman and her husband's going to leave for her. And the wife kind of lets her know that this is no surprise and that, honey, oh, you're not that special. You're just the other other woman. Kid in line, sweetheart. Um, so so I, I don't think there's many 22-year-olds writing that song. I hope not. But here it, here it is, Meredith Shaw with the other, other woman. You're the other, 
other woman You sound surprised No reason to cry Yes, there's another Meredith Shaw with the other, other woman. Talk to me a little bit about the process of songwriting. Where does it start for you? Does it start with lyrics or with music or the inspiration of a particular event? What's your style of writing? It depends. Sometimes it is lyrics. Sometimes there's just a hook that rolls around in my head. Like for Whiskey Situation, it was very much a conversation I had with a friend where everything bad that was happening in the world and it was um, all of our jobs were kind of messed up. And so we had this other job that was drinking, Uh, you know, what am I going to drink tonight? And she's like, well, you said you had that bottle of wine. I'm like, I don't know. You know, they, they sent us home for two more weeks, but I think it's going to be longer. I think it's going to be a lot longer than that. This feels like a whiskey situation. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh, that's a good, that's a good line. I got to go write that down. Hold on. I got to go put that in my Google file. And, I have a feeling I'm going to write a song about that. And so, you know, that's totally where that song came from was going, oh, uh, I just said something that I I want to write a song around. And other times it's more of just messing around on my guitar and finding something. And I sometimes just play on my guitar and things just start flowing out. It was kind of interesting to actually work in in Nashville with my co-writer, with David Browning, where it was, okay, we have an opportunity to pitch something. We need to come up with something. You know, that was one of the first times where it didn't kind of work like that. It it was a job. It was like, we need to come up with something. By the end of the day, we need to have a song. Let's sit here and work on this. And okay, well, what should it be about? Here's, you know, so we came up with this song called Denver. And that was a whole different way of approaching it, where usually it's, oh, I need some sort of divine inspiration well, if you're going to be a professional songwriter, you need to be able to to treat it more like a job. And so it's, it's I've been trying to make that shift of, okay, let's come up with an idea and let's say we're going to bang something out today. I'm still not quite there yet, but it's <laughs> it, it's it's getting better. Do you try and write every day or life gets in the way? Life gets in the way a lot. I try. I'm like everyone. I try. Um, ideally that would be the way, and I have to also not get in my way so much of, oh, this has to be Nashville recording worthy. Mm. Like sometimes you just need to write something because you want to say it. Sometimes here's just a song. I, here's just something I want to say, and it's not going to be maybe, maybe it's not going to be the best song I ever wrote, but that doesn't mean people aren't going to like it or that people aren't going to relate to it. So in terms of local gigs, what do you have coming up where people can come out and hear you? 
I am playing, I'm actually playing up home, so I'm from a like farm town in northeast Missouri. I'm playing there April 2nd, but I have a show April 9th at Cooper's Landing coming up from 2 to 5 in the afternoon, and that's kind of my next big thing that'll be coming up, so I hope people will come up. We're hoping it'll be another one of these gorgeous springtime days yeah. that people can get out, and so that'll be... That's kind of the next big thing that's coming. And if people want to buy your music and support you financially, is there a way of doing that? I have music on iTunes. That's the main way to buy it. Really, it's on Spotify and, and those places. Just stream it all the time. You know, come out, come to the shows, tip well. That's always a good way to support your local artists. Uh, we appreciate that a lot. I have a song called Just the Tips, which if you go to my page, I will say that was one of one of my life highlights, right? So you talk about some of the differences with some of these younger artists. I had a moment playing a song that a Nashville crowd, a crowd of other songwriters, they had never heard before, but they were I had a whole bar singing along <laughs> by the end of the song and I was like, this this was the dream. I don't need to come back. This is everything that 22-year-old me ever wanted was, you know, to have a Nashville bar singing along with one of my songs. <laughs> this, this is it. Um, so it's it's been a pretty amazing couple of years. And the fact that they want me to keep coming back is also just amazing. So I'm planning to go back. I've got a trip planned for May and hoping to get down there another time this summer. Well, I'm sure that they will love you and I wish you all the best. I'm so proud. Every time I see something on Facebook that you've done, I just think, yay, go Meredith. Thank you. My guest has been singer-songwriter Meredith Shaw and you can hear her three released singles on Spotify and you can also catch her at Cooper's Landing on April the 9th from 2 till 5 p.m. Meredith, thanks for being such an inspiration and for taking time to chat this evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Diana. that is it for another week all the speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistorfm and of course you can also connect through the kopn website at kopn.org thank you to my guests trent rash executive director of the missouri symphony orchestra and singer songwriter meredith shaw Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! <laughs> <laughs>